never done this before. This was all new to me. You didn't yeah, let okay. me die, which is more than other people have done. <laughs> One person was like, literally just let me kick and fall over because she was like, you kicked wrong. And I was like, that doesn't mean you get to let me fall. Yeah. That's not that better I'm... too much support than too little. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've definitely begun to lean towards too much support. I like the point where I know I've supported my friends too much is when they ask me actually is when they actually ask me to stop. It's like, <laughs> can you can you stop being a cheerleader for about five minutes and just tell me something negative? Tell me something that I'm doing wrong that I need to fix. And I'm like, but I don't see anything. It's like, then you're not looking hard enough. Fix yourself. You you are the problem here. <laughs> Toxic um, positivity, Nate. Toxic positivity. My dad is a little like that. Um, you know, sometimes I just want to vent to him and he, you know, comes in with all his positivity. And I have told him before, like, I'm going to need you to put down your solution bazooka gun for like yeah. one minute and just yeah. let me say what I want to say. <laughs> one of the best things I ever saw about that was, uh, it was like a tweet or something like that. And it was before every, like, before like these discussions, my partner and I will say, do you need to vent or do you need to brainstorm? And it's changed how we interact with those things because sometimes you do just need someone to be like, yes, the world does suck and we're going to burn it all to the ground. And then five minutes later, like, okay, but how do we actually solve what's going on? Cool. Thanks. Bye. But you need that like cathartic moment first. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember having a discussion with my brother. This was several, several years ago where he was talking about like, you know, the, the about like balancing between like his obligation to the rest of the family, like the brothers and the parents and his, and his wife, who I think he'd only married like about a year, no, about three years prior. Um, and he was like, it, it's a balance of careers. They're a military family. So like, there's always problems with that. Um, but I remember just like talking with him and he was like telling me all these different problems. And I was just kind of like, you know what? This just sounds like life. This, like, I can't help you here. I don't know what you want me to do here. This just sounds like your problem and you're the one that's got to figure it out. And he's like, okay, sometimes I just need you to listen and not be realistic about things. Just listen. I'm just trying to talk to you about my life. And I was like, okay, I will back off and not say anything more. Um, so. I've gotten to the habit of like, let me just rant about this real quick. And then I think that kind of that little preamble, of, I just need two seconds to rant. <laughs> solves that thing but speaking of ranting and open-ended tangents hello and welcome back to another episode of dark waters a literary podcast devoted to dark fiction and those who love to read and write it i'm kirsten here as always with nate hey everybody and our guest for this episode ray Knowles. hi happy to be here as a queer woman with multiple works forthcoming from Brigitte's Gate Press. Her debut novel, The Stradivarius, debuted May 23. Her sapphic horror novella, Merciless Waters, is due out November 23. And her collaboration with April Yates, Lies That Bind, in early 24. A number of her short stories have been published or are forthcoming from publications like Dark Mattering, Nightmare, Seize the Press, Taco Bell Quarterly, and Nose Touch Press. Recent updates on her work can be found at her website, or you can follow her on Twitter at at underscore Ray underscore Knowles, and we will link all of that in the show notes. So we want to talk to you about the Stradivarius, but also like, is there anything else you want to add to that? And the lovely, not busy life you have. (laughs) <laughs> that's a great summation of things um obviously Taco Bell quarterly always sticks out and I'm always sort of waiting for the questions 
fiercely competitive and, and being included is probably my finest achievement to date, if I'm being honest. What was the story that you, that you had in uh, TVQ? Oh gosh. Um, so if I leave any writing legacy behind, it will probably be this story for better or worse. Um, the story is called Taco Rotica. And it is Taco Bell themed erotica. And it's exactly what you think it is. And it's disgusting. And I don't recommend that anyone reads it. Um, but if they do, that's what you're in for. Gives a whole new meaning to Crunchwrap Supreme. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lots of imagery. Lots of supreme imagery. <laughs> hey, did I make you take your headphones off this time? Did I break no, you this time? No, 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 no. It's, it's reminding me of... Oh gosh, like it reminds me of some really niche jokes I've heard as well. Like in addition to that, because I, I found that ironically enough, it was my sister-in-law who introduced me to this tweet, but it was something along the lines of, it was like dad themed erotica, where I think at one point, like it includes phrase, it includes phrases like, oh, she pressed him up against the wall and like pulled the, uh, Pulled the world's best dad t-shirt out of the the crease of his jorts she pushed him back on the bed and he started to take his shoes off and she said no the new balance 624 stay on and i was like i love this and i hate this totally. the exact same time. <laughs> it's exactly like that um but taco bell themes yeah okay all right then <laughs> i like how you're the the thing that you call is your chronic achievement you're also like but no one has to read it you just have to know that i got in there <laughs> there is yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's representative of my writing at large in any way. Essentially, when I heard that Taco Bell Quarterly was a thing that existed and I read their website, which is very funny, um, I I kind of just thought, what's the most absurd thing that I can possibly send them? And I had zero expectation that it would ever be accepted by any stretch of the imagination. And naturally, erotica seemed like the most ridiculous thing to pair with Taco Bell and the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> See, I think you had the right, the, you definitely had the right strategy since you got accepted, but I, I took it the opposite route and went like very serious with like Taco Bell illusions. Um, and so like mine was a lot more emotionally charged and making me look like a fool because it's, it's an autobiographical story in a way which involves me walking through a drive-through. Um, and yeah, I can see why they would have selected yours instead of mine. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've read some really beautiful work that they've published. Yeah. That sounds like it's it's similar in the vein of, of what you're talking about. Um, recently, they actually reposted it. I read it when issue six first came out, but I believe the title is Four Ways to End a Grinder Romance. And it's absolutely heart-wrenching and beautiful. Um, there's a, a poem too that they published. I'll probably butcher the title off the top of my head, but I want to say it's Ode to My Mother Pissing in a Mountain Dew Cup. Um, and it's also very... Um, human and emotional and beautiful so I, I don't think you were far off if anyone was off base it was certainly me I'll, I'll take full responsibility um for the erotica disaster that I created <laughs> disaster is something now, beautiful That's, I was gonna say on the contrary now I have to go check it out <laughs> yep it, it does include the line he Baja blasted uh I ah! get that question a lot and the answer is yes <laughs> Oh. 
I make no apologies for my sound effects. <laughs> it's fine. It's great. Anyway, uh, so I could talk about that for a lot longer, but um, we want to ask you a few questions to help our listeners get to know you better if he Baja Blasted wasn't enough. So because this is what we do, what do you normally classify under the header of dark fiction? Why do you love it? And what are you specifically looking for when you're looking for a new book in that genre? Oh gosh. So I have a very specific interest that I'm looking for in the genre right now. So I'll talk about that. Um, but just to sort of answer your first question about what I like about the, the genre, I have loved dark things um, as far as I can remember. Oddly enough, when I was really little, my parents took me to see Mars Attacks. I was way too young to see Mars Attacks, and I know it's a comedy, but to me at the time, it was horror. I was absolutely horrified. Um, I had nightmares forever, um, just terrified of the world. And um, after that, I think that super strong reaction kind of um, warped into something where I was seeking out, you know, fear in in media. So, you know, I was probably five or six when when I saw that. Um, but, you know, coming into being like a teen and then obviously as an adult, uh, I'm just obsessed. I'm obsessed with horror movies with true crime. I listen to true crime podcasts more than is healthy or normal, um, documentaries, just all kinds of horror media, both fiction and nonfiction. Um, I, I cannot get enough. I can Love that. appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as far as what I'm looking for, like today, if I'm looking for a book, so I, I just finished How to Lose the Time War, um, a result of the biggest, dickless Twitter phenomenon that has occurred. I don't know if you're familiar with this. Um, no. no. So the very abridged version is How to Lose uh, the Time War is a novella that came out in 2019. And um, this random account um, tweeted professing their love for this book and sort of demanding people to go buy it. And it has caused it to become a bestseller. This tweet went viral. Um, and I was one of the people that saw it and was absolutely enraptured. And it, it's not horror. I would say it's sci-fi, but it contained a lot of the elements that I'm looking for in horror that I find are very difficult to find. And what I love in horror, like my perfect book, would be sapphic, maybe like some enemies to lovers happening. I love, you know, sort of um, dread and desire in books. I love um, gothic leanings in books, historical leanings, really beautiful prose. Um, and I write a lot of erotic horror. So the Stradivarius is not an example of that, um, but uh, you know, a lot of my recent writing leans into erotic horror and I love that mingling of sort of the grotesque uh, with intrigue and, and passion. So there's not a ton of sapphic horror out there that sort of fits what I'm looking for. So I'm kind of constantly searching for recommendations, but I do recommend How to Lose the Time War as a really excellent sapphic uh, enemies to lovers story have you read chlorine by jade song no in fact i don't think i've even heard of it i i hesitate the only it wasn't necessarily my cup of tea but it seems like it would take a lot of those boxes um it's about a girl who's obsessed with mermaids and takes that to 
a very high degree <laughs> um but it had a lot so the re so my thing was that i think a lot of the reviews and stuff were people being like, as a student athlete, I related to this thing and that thing and that thing. And I just wasn't. So parts of it weren't as appealing to me. And it was also marked as it was horror. It was coming of age and horror and like body horror. But for me, it was more of the coming of age part. But it did have like the kind of grotesque, the sapphic, the desire mixed with dread, the all of that stuff so if maybe check it out you might I think you might like it yeah um, I'm gonna write that down thank you it came out I think two months ago it's really recent so I'm trying to think if there's anything else I keep getting TikTok recommendations for people being like if you liked this sapphic horror you'll like that sapphic horror and I personally like horror where a lot of people die so sometimes that's not the same thing like I I like the the noir horror where there's like lots of violence so yeah, no totally I I love a lot of violence too I think um House of Hunger comes to mind as like a really nice sapphic gothic horror tale and interesting twist on vampires in there um Paula Ash I don't know if you're familiar with her work put out a collection called we are here to hurt each other and um definitely read the content warnings there it's extreme horror it's not for the faint of heart but um it just beautiful incredible work um the prose is so gorgeous I I'm a real sucker for gorgeous prose in horror I absolutely love it and highly recommend Paula Ash's work yeah. I when you can kind of when you can combine it and make it beautiful while also being like do I do I keep the lights on for this part? What's going on? Like that's such that's such talent. That's such, yeah. such talent. The the mark of quality I always tend to view it with is is this something that will make me cry, but I can never show a small child because <laughs> it would frighten the hell out of them. Um that's simply that's simply a good uh, good benchmark to have, and I'm and I'm really intrigued by both house. It was House of Hunger, you said. House of Hunger. I believe the author is Alexis Henderson. Hopefully, I'm remembering that correctly. It's a pretty big book. Um, yeah, I mean, I could really go on and on. Anna Burke has a really gorgeous. Um, I would call it dark fantasy more than horror, but certainly has its fair share of violence. Um, coming out, I believe, end of August, called "In the Roses of Pieria," and I hope I'm pronouncing Pieria correctly. And I'm also sure that I'm not. Um, but but again, sort of an enemies to lovers story there, and it's very steeped in history. Did yeah. you, um, have you ever read Courtney Summers too? I don't think I have. Nate's going to get so sick of me talking about Courtney Summers and I just don't care because he mentions Flannery O'Connor a lot. I am um, not going to get sick of that. I actually love Courtney <laughs> Summers. Um, she released a book in 2022 called I'm the Girl okay. and think uh, crime story, sort of coming of age story mixed with the Jeffrey Epstein trial vibes oh. with a... Um, sort of kind of love story mixed mixed in um and it's uh yeah it's it's beautiful and it's i was so just sad after <laughs> like there was no other way that that book could have ended and it just made me so depressed <laughs> and i was like okay cool love that love that for love that for these characters that's awesome that's great. Um, 
I love fiction that harkens to true crime. Yeah. It's not like, it's not trying to be the Jeffrey Epstein trial, but that's the closest equivalent that I can really like think of. Um, she did a book that I am obsessed with called Sadie, which was a true crime and it was written to be a true crime podcast. And the guy's like releasing the episodes of the podcast. And then every other chapter is the main character. And he's like writing about her like two steps behind her journey. So you're getting it kind of on both ends. And it's it's really well done. But I recommend that as an audiobook more than um just because of the podcast nature of it. It translates really well. So also if you like the true crime stuff, that's a that was a good one too. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds fascinating. I, I've been enjoying epistolary formats more lately. There's a um, submission call out right now for dead letters that's looking for epistolary format stories. And I've happened to read a few epistolary format stories um, in long form lately and have been having a lot of fun experimenting with it. I, I wrote a short story for the first time fully in epistolary and it's just interesting to play with. That has been one of the most intriguing formats for me to read and it is one of the hardest ones for me to try and write um just because it's like the way the reason it's so intriguing is because very rarely is it direct it tends to like look around corners a lot and hint at things that are subtle cues as to what exactly is going on with the rare exception of like Dracula at one point gets very very descriptive in the letters that it includes because it has to because otherwise you know the horror is just going to be lost on people, but it's, but letters and novel, like novels and letters are one of those ones that I'm just kind of like, how did this person structure this to work without going semi-insane? Um, but if you're having a lot of fun with it, I'm really intrigued to see what you put, what you put out in that format. Thank you. Yeah. Well, we'll see. Um, the, the story I wrote is out a couple of places. So keep your fingers crossed for me. We will keep, we will keep fingers crossed and eyes open. Um, well, on the flip side of that, obviously we all love dark fiction, but everything in life needs balance. So what was the last book you read or worked on or are working on that left you with positive, hopeful, somewhat optimistic feelings? Oh, that's about the hardest question you could ask me. Um, it trips up everybody. Mind. Uh, I think, I mean, I really exclusively consume dark media. Um, not to say that I'm not left with hopeful messages from it, but I really struggle to think of any recent examples of like comedies or. No, I think that hopeful messaging works too. Like that's also, that applies. Yeah. Hi. Hmm. Let me think. I actually just finished yesterday a novella from C.S. Umbel called uh, All These Subtle Deceits. It's the first in a series. Um, it's going to be a five book series. I believe the first two are out. And it's really excellent, really interesting twist on an exorcism story, which I'm a total exorcist anything fanatic so I'm already here for it uh, but really beautifully written and I think he does a great job I don't want to give any spoilers um, but the themes are um, both dark and and hopeful and sort of spiritual in nature and I really got a lot out of that all these subtle deceits it's called that's awesome I cannot demon things are like my worst book fear 
clowns somehow that doesn't translate so well in books like it sort of but like clowns don't translate as well but demon possession freaks me out so <laughs> if you say that it's got a hopeful message though i believe you I'm I'm intrigued just because you normally don't you don't hear about the hope when it comes to exorcisms, um, but yeah, I I love. Okay, I won't say I love it, but I enjoy demon possession stories, um, for probably different re- for probably really weird reasons, but I find them very fascinating, uh, and I'm scared and terrified by them, but they are fascinating to me, um particularly when you see like different formats of it or like how it changes over the years. Um, just like seeing how different people view it and how different people interpret it is always fascinating to me. But all these syllables, it's C-E Umble? C-S Umble, spelled okay. like Humble. Ah, got it. And I'd like to hear your weird reasons for enjoying exorcism stories. Okay. Um, so part of it is that I, so I grew up in a very conservative strain of Catholicism. I still, I still am, I still consider myself a Catholic, but it's, my faith has changed significantly from how I was when I was like 10, 12 years old. Um, and inevitably the topic of like, oh, demons, possession, like all these different things, like, you know, the spiritual combat nature of it, that comes up. But very rarely is it discussed as anything other than just kind of like, oh, these are the things you must do to protect yourself. But possession stories tend to often talk about a psychological angle of it as well. Because, and I think Come Closer by Sarah Graham actually does this really, really well, where it talks about the nature of like, you are changing in a way. And there is something that is inside of you that is not your own and is driving you to do things that you normally wouldn't have done. Maybe they were latent desires. Maybe it was whatever. But something that is not you is now controlling who you are. And how does that affect your psychology? How does that affect the way you think? How does that affect your own identity of who you are? And I find those questions um, personally fascinating because I see a lot of people who are like, oh, this is my identity. This is who I am. And it's like, I don't think it is. I think you I think you are projecting something because you think that's what you're supposed to be doing instead of what you actually are or who you are and the way you actually view the world. And I find the idea of people who hide behind masks very intriguing. It's a fun thing to play with and sad at the exact same time. But that idea of which one is the mask, the demon or the person who is being possessed? And in which case, what happens when they get closer and closer and closer together? Um, I'm also just fascinated by the historical perspectives on demonology or black masses or things like that, because again, it's a horrifying thing for me personally, but I'm fascinated by what drives people to want to go down that very, very dark route of exploration. And so I can know what to semi-avoid or what I should probably seek some mental help for if it ever comes up in my brain. Um, so more often than not, it's cautionary tales and very informative psychological experiments for me. Um, it's weird, but this is this is what I love. No, I, I just find it so funny that his religious trauma is what makes him interested and my religious trauma is what makes me run in the opposite direction. So, sorry, you were going to say something. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, I think it's fascinating. And, and I think that's so valid. And and a, your observation just now, I think is 
applicable across the board with how uh, folks respond to trauma, either by running toward or running away from. Um, but the way you were describing it reminded me a little bit of uh, addiction. You know, if you read my nightmare piece, you know that I'm in long-term recovery and very much uh, similar sort of themes there, right? Of like, who are you really? Uh, how much does it take to drive you to do things you wouldn't think you would do before? Um, all, all those sorts of questions are really interesting. Yeah, and I love I love that nightmare piece. Um, yeah. as, as, I, as I was saying before, before we started recording, the the way you just, and this comes up in in the Stradivarius as well, and you mentioned it there. Um, but just the way that you, the way that you approached the method of healing through writing of horror, um, again, is something that I absolutely love. So I was very happy to see that, and I was happy to get a little bit more of a glimpse inside of who you are as a writer and who you are as a person. So thank you for sharing that with the world. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Thank you. Uh, it was very hard to write. I think I started writing it literally six months before I needed to. And it was just like a crawl. I, I don't write a lot of nonfiction. It was my first ever nonfiction piece uh, published and obviously very personal subject matter to me regarding my own uh, history in an abusive relationship. And then, you know, the subsequent uh, dark years of addiction, you know, that followed. Um, so thank you. It's been really nice hearing that it's resonated with people. Very much so. Sure. I, I, have, I have a few friends that are in long-term recovery as well for, for different, uh, uh, for different reasons. And so I, I try to find ways that I can learn a little bit more about what they may have gone through or what they may be experiencing. And so um, that essay was one of those, one of those tools that I have for that now. Um, but yeah, it's always, it's always hard writing nonfiction when you're, when you're mostly used to writing fiction, because now, particularly when it's something that's very, very personal, you have to be very careful how you address certain things and what you're willing to put out there. Um, so. It's funny you say that, because that didn't bother me. I just kept thinking it was boring. I kept having people read it and go, is it boring though? Is, isn't it boring? Because I'm used to fiction, like exciting, you know, whatever. And I was like, oh, my own story, blah, blah, blah. I just thought it was so boring. It's boring to you because it's boring to you because to some degree you've seen it before, but to everyone else, it's like, this is fascinating. Um. <laughs> yeah. I think it's always like, I'm just talking about myself. That's no one's interested in that. You're like, someone's probably interested in that. And like, your writing is very, it's very, or um, I'm thinking the right word. Honest. It's awesome. very, uh, trying to think of like the, the right word for just being like, it just feels like you. It feels like you didn't fake anything. It feels like you put your, you just bared it all on that page and uh, authentic that was the word <laughs> very authentic thank you i have two brain cells i promise i just constantly rub them together but, um but speaking of kind of going <laughs> back in the past a little bit um can you recall what the first story you had published was and what inspired you to write it yeah, so my first published story was about a year ago now. Um, I haven't really been in the game that long, um, but it was published by Samantha Kolsnick in an anthology called Moonflowers and Nightshade. It was an anthology of sapphic horror, which is like 
so my jam. Um, and what inspired me to write it? So I like I said, actually, in the nightmare article, I, I find I keep writing very similar dynamics over and over again. Um, I think, again, as sort of processing um, dynamics that are unresolved in my mind. And so a narcissistic love interest and a sort of obsessive, you know, partner is a dynamic that I find endlessly fascinating. Um, and yeah, I wanted that to play out. I, I also love feminine rage in stories and, and women, um, being violent. Uh, I, I find it really interesting. And I think it's so socially taboo for women to express their rage as rage and not as like grief or uh, anxiety or caretaking or like however else it comes out uh, that I love to write about that. Um, so it really came out of that desire. And uh, the story is called Common Oleander. And it centers this couple who is growing oleander among other things in their garden to prepare for their very small towns oleander competition um and you know violence ensues <laughs> love that have you ever read the power by naomi alderman or nosferatu by joe hill gosh i haven't and now this is like the fourth book that you've brought up that I haven't read and I'm feeling very insufficient in my I've life. read nothing that you've mentioned either so this <laughs> is all a give and take don't worry about it um the power I love it's a um dystopian story it, the way that it's written is very very interesting um and it's years and years and years from now it's a uh it's a feminine run like the world is feminine run and it's looking and it's these researchers looking back at what happened and then you kind of dive into the whole thing and it's that women are given i think they called it a skein and mm. can somehow electrocute people yeah. and kind of take over the misogyny like flip the okay. our current patriarchal society and it's but it's a lot of uh there's a lot of feminine rage in that book for sure and it's beautifully it. done it's now a show on amazon i haven't checked it out because i'm very nervous because i love the book so much but that's a show now and then nosferatu is also a show it was an interestingly done show but um that was a horror novel by joe hill and the main protagonist is uh, a woman and her son has been kidnapped but she is just devastating everything in her way to get to her son. And there's a lot of, I mean, it kind of touches on the thing that you were saying, the rage is expressed as caretaking, but it's, she's not shying away from the violent aspect or um, dam or afraid of damage to herself or those around her. So I would, I would recommend those. And Nosferatu had some pretty creepy moments to it. So I, I liked it. I, I would recommend those too. Yeah, you're going to have to send me a list of these books so that I can check them out. And I'm assuming Nosferatu, does it have vampires in it? Not in the traditional sense. Okay. It's the, so it's N-0-S-4-R-2. It's a license plate. Interesting. Okay. Anyway, getting back on track. Um, 
Can you tell us a little bit about your writing habits? You kind of mentioned that you need more focus and like kind of to be in more of a distraction-free environment. Is there something that you need to do before you begin writing or while you're working that enables you to keep focused? Yeah, it depends. So sometimes I'm in the zone and I can just click away. If I need to get in the zone, because say like, oh, I have the whole day to write, but I'm just not really feeling it. I'll listen to music to try to get in the zone. Um, And if I really am having trouble getting in the zone, I'll listen to music in the shower to get in the zone. I swear that ideas live in the shower. Um, This is my theory. I think they live there um, for malicious reasons, potentially, because you obviously can't write them down in there. Um, But yeah, those are some of the things that will sort of get the inspiration flowing. As far as like habits or routines, I... I've tried different things like the writing everyday thing or having like word count limits. But to be honest, I found that just writing when the inspiration is there works out a lot better for me. Um, When I really push myself to write when I'm not feeling in the zone, um, I end up throwing out those passages. They just don't sing for me. So whenever I have an idea jump into my head, you know, I'll try to write then, or at least jot down the ideas like in my notes app on my phone so that I can come back to them later. Cause my other thing I've learned and I Zhang said this and it's brilliant and very true for me that the muse doesn't sing the same song twice. So, and I found that to be true. So if I have like an idea for a great line or a scene that I really like, if I don't write it down, I will not remember it later. <laughs> Tell me yep. about it. Yeah. So fun fact, actually, in terms of writing things down in the shower, um, there are a series of notebooks that I think were developed for the Marine Corps um, or developed for the U- U.S. military, something like that. But they actually are uh, the papers actually semi waterproof. So you can actually write uh, you can actually write to a degree on it. It's not like it can't be like directly under the water, but, you know, you can write it and it won't go away. Um, so if you ever need that, that can happen. But, I was just thinking like turn like post a giant whiteboard on the side. I like that idea better. <laughs> but uh, just can you imagine like coming back and your uh your wife or whatever sees it and she's just like, honey, what um what? <laughs> there's like some mentions of murder and there's like this thing, like, are you okay? <laughs> it's a business investment, don't worry about it. <laughs> But I, I a imagine... horror story. <laughs> yeah, that, that is the start of a horror story right there. Just be like, she found the whiteboard and then everything went to shit. Um, <laughs> um, but on the Muse doesn't sing the same song twice. I think I actually, because I was actually listening to an interview with Aijan uh, about a week ago. I think she was on the Talking Scared podcast uh, for the for her new novella, which was endlessly fascinating. But that idea of like the muse doesn't sing the same song twice. I think I remember her saying that. And it was, it crystallized so many truths that I had thought before, but never realized. That was why, it was why it was just kind of like, why did I have this great idea? And then I come back to it like about five minutes later and it's completely gone and I can't get it back at all. And now I know that it's that's gone forever and I'm never going to get it back. And I just weep for the stories I could have had if I had actually just written the damn thing down. I will have full conversations, like dialogue in my head of my characters when I'm driving my car and just be like, you're almost home. You're almost home. You're almost home. Get through the door. And it's with me. It's through, like I open whatever. And then I open the apartment door and it's like, 
fly like butterflies out the window. <laughs> totally. Shower for me is first and driving the car is second for when it happens, of course. And I, I shouldn't say this, but I have risked many lives as well as my own to jot down notes in my app while I'm driving. <laughs> I shouldn't admit that. But <laughs> she uses voice to text, folks. It's all through voice to text. It's fine. It's fine. I have this, I have this habit of, I've started, uh, I'm surrounded by notepads at work or those tear off like post-it notepads. And I've started writing down the notes and I'll take them with me out of the office. Uh, like two separate notepads, one that's like work related, one that's like personal related where it's got like random phone numbers or like different snippets of dialogue and character descriptions and all those things are like realizations I've had. And I'm just kind of like, I get home I start unloading my pockets to make sure that nothing gets lost in the, in the laundry because I've lost a lot that way. Um, and I just find like all these different, it's like, why was I thinking this was a smart idea? Like now I just have a ton of paper that I have to keep track of. Um, <laughs> I need to get more organized with my life. <laughs> if you could expand out your repertoire beyond what you've already done, what type of genre would you want to work in? So like poetry, plays, graphic novels, and why? Oh, I think screenwriting. Um, I, you know, I'm not unique in the fact that I would love to see my work acted out one day, either, you know, on television or in a movie. Um, I have no screenwriting skills. <laughs> so I think if I was going to branch out, it would probably be to learn that format. It's definitely different. The pacing is definitely... It... Uh... Brandon Sanderson had a whole thing about adaptations and just how writing a novel, you can like pace it in such a different way where, and like you can wait for the tension. You can have moments where like, it's not that nothing happens, but it's not exciting. Whereas with TV shows and screen and screenwriting and stuff, it, it can't be that same kind of chapter scene bookended thing. It has to be a continuous story and it, in a different way than novels have to be a continuous story. And it's just, yeah, it's fascinating. Definitely, definitely a specific skill set. I would also say is that like you said that your first story got published a year ago. You don't have screenwriting skills now with a little bit of time. I think you could have some really give some it really another six ones. months. Yeah. <laughs> six, six, six months on the on the big screen. It's on the marquee written by Ray Knowles. Um <laughs> but uh I think the other thing about screenwriting, and this is probably one of the things that constantly that I would always have a hard time with, and I imagine this is what some novelists may have a little bit of troubleshooting, is that the action you're describing for a screen for screenwriting, like everything has to be observable from the outside, as opposed to like novels or books where it's like you can actually do like a little bit of internal deep diving on the different characters in a way that wouldn't show up well on the camera. And I imagine that is, that could be, that could be a little bit difficult to like kind of shift out of that mindset where it's like you can go into like these deep interpersonal, like, sorry, not interpersonal, but introspective uh, examinations for like a character in a way that like you can't show on camera, but. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, but the the screenwriting one is definitely i would love to see anything that you write um but kind of one of the other and you kind of you may have already mentioned this a little bit in some of the earlier uh questions but is there a character you've written or a theme that you've explored that you'd want to revisit in the future if the opportunity arose 
Yeah. Um, I really can't stop. Like I said, writing about this dynamic between, you know, sort of narcissistic type person. And, and I, I say narcissistic, but what I mean is sort of a range all the way from a little bit self-absorbed through like a full nihilist. Um, I, I like, you know, anywhere in that sort of family and then, you know, as like a, a sort of love interest or a counterpart, someone who ranges anywhere from quote unquote normal to sort of obsessive and scary in their own right. Um, so I keep sort of playing with that. Those characters I, I've written in a number of short stories and in the novella Merciless Waters that's coming out in November centers those same characters under uh, different names than in the short stories, but they're the same characters. And I, I just love that dynamic. I find it endlessly fascinating. I, I can't see not writing more stories about them in the future. I'd love to put out a whole collection just about these two characters at some point. Yeah, I think the the way you describe that spectrum where it goes from like a full-on nihilist to someone who's just a little bit self-centered and then normal to obsessive and scary. I would love to see the dynamic between someone who is obsessive and scary, but a full nihilist as well. Like seeing someone on the far end of both of those spectrums and how they play off of each other. That would be very interesting to examine. Because I imagine, because like I would love to see if the narcissist kind of blinks first where if they start realizing like yes this may all be about me but in reality i am terrified of this other person i i agree with you though i think that dynamic presents so much in the way of storytelling because there's so and like you can talk about the manipulation you can talk uh, to get the person on your side or to keep the person on your side what that situation looks like at the beginning versus at the end how like the give and take of it and just how in how many ways that can come up and in how many ways that can I just yeah I think there's so much to explore there I I think there's absolutely room for a collection out of that idea thank you yeah and one of the big questions that I like between these two characters is who is the villain of this story um which is what I hope people are thinking about when they read, you know, especially Merciless Waters, which opens on, well, basically just the central premise is, is uh, this somewhat obsessive character, Jack, going to be able to win back this somewhat narcissistic character, Lily's affection? Um, and what lengths is Jack willing to go to do it? Um, and sort of, who deserves to win at the end of this and in what way? Or does or do either of them deserve to win? Um, I love books where I want, where I hate uh, all the characters involved. And I'm yeah. just like rooting for everyone to fail. I love those. I don't know what that says about me, but I really like those stories. Totally. And with Merciless Waters, I really set out to make all the main characters bad people, um, you know, who are just at, at least very morally gray people um, that, you know, there's really no clear protagonist or antagonist. There's just people that want different things and what they're willing to do to get them. I, I always think those kinds of characters are more interesting to me anyway, than like a pure like hero's journey where there's a very clear, um, God, I just hate a 
like incorruptible moral protagonists. I'm just not interested. Like, yeah. yeah, they're very boring to read about. It's yeah. I, I want to see shitty people making <laughs> shitty decisions in a <laughs> shitty environment. Yeah. That's all. And like, just to see how that plays out. And like, I, and like some of the stuff I've written in some of my characters and stuff, it's not necessarily that they're, it's not an incorruptible thing you know that they're the good person but they've also like probably blown up a building or something in the past you know like they're not perfect by any means and I think that just makes it whenever and that's kind of when I'm looking for books I don't want people who are perfect bother me or people who present an air of being perfect bother me and I'm just like I don't care about you I I want something bad to happen to you now because it's just been presented as you're wonderful and perfect and lovely and everything's great. I I think it's hard to relate to that. Um, I I beta read a novel and, you know, bless the author, but one of my big notes on it was basically, listen, even this person's flaws, and I'm using air quotes, are noble. We don't want it. Like, give us something, something selfish. Give me something that's not admirable because this doesn't feel real. Like we, people are grounded in reality and characters should be grounded in reality. And I, I just, I find it personally uninteresting um, when they're not truly flawed, not like, oh, I'm, I'm too selfless. That's my flaw. Like, ah, bleh, I hate that's that. That's a bad interview answer. Yeah. Like what's your, what's your worst quality at work? I'm too dedicated. It gives the same energy as when you're looking at a character and their flaw is that they're clumsy. Yeah. Like that's their only personality trait is they're like, oh, they trip a lot. Yeah. I created a character. Like, oh, I want a flaw. Like in Merciless Waters, our main character is like cutting her love interest hair off to do like rituals with it. Like weird, you know, like, like that's not okay type of behavior and like animal sacrifice to try to get her way like it's it's not good it's not chill you know oh I can't wait to read this <laughs> that sounds great my, my, my general rule for like characters that I really enjoy I want you to have made at least two or three decisions that you are very conflicted about years yeah. after the fact and if you're not I want to have a very good explanation as to what that reason what the decision was and why you made it um because yeah it <laughs> saints are boring to read about like they really are they are it's and i can't i can't imagine a best-selling novel where the where the hero is completely a saint it's like give me some gray area please that's that's where all the fun stuff lives in the very first book i wrote which will never see the light of day because it was horrible but the opening scene i stand by the opening scene you know is the main character who is a therapist who we think is taking notes during a therapy session, but we pan out to realize she's just drawing penises. <laughs> so I might have to find a way to bring that into a different work because oh, please I love do. that for her. Oh, I love that. <laughs> please do that. That sounds amazing. Yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, gosh, I... Yeah, I, I love opening scenes like that. I, I love... I love being able to see that the character is very, very flawed in such a way that it's like, I don't, I struggle with people who are just kind of like, I would love a character that I could go ahead and have a beer with. I'm like, I want characters that I would be scared to be in a bar with yeah. because I don't know what they're going to do. Like, those are the people that are really fun to watch. Like, they'd be shitty friends, yeah. but they're really great. They're really great to watch. 
Um, yeah, sir. You're good at that too, Nate, of writing the um, morally gray protagonist, the the person who you're rooting for against your will. They're they're fucking assholes, but you want them to win. Yeah, I. I I, you, I I struggle with it, but yeah, it's, I mean, the main character of the novel I'm trying to write right now is guilty of trying to kill his father, has killed at least two other people, and has maimed at least one person in a way that the reader can see, and it's very much alluded to that he killed someone he was in love with just to avoid being killed himself, because he was conflicted on the idea of, like, if I stay with this person, I'm going to die, but if I kill them, I'm totally fine. And yeah, I was thinking, be... come away to the water too. Yeah, a guy who kills his own daughter is really kind of not a great person to, to sympathize with. But yeah. oddly enough, I hope some people do in some way, shape, or form, um, and make an entirely different decision. <laughs> um, Man. but I wish I, I wish I had more like literary examples to pull out of this one. But it's like I always kind of go back to the idea of the. <clears throat> George Orwell at one point had a quote saying, we only sleep peacefully in our beds tonight because rough men stand willing to do violence on our behalf. And it's the uncomfortable, like, I feel like that question encapsulates, like, do we root for people who are doing horrible things for a semi-good cause? Or like, are they doing terrible things and do we still root for them? It's the unsettling question of our humanity. It's just like, we're not doing anything bad, but they have to do, but they're doing it for a reason that we agree with. And how do we feel about that? They are committing an act that we deem as unethical or violent or immoral, but they're doing it for a reason that we agree with. What does that say about us? And some people are able to square that circle very, very easily. Well, I think for uh, me, to that point, with it's because it's fiction. And in fiction, you can have the darkest, grittiest, horrible story but someone that you morally agree with, at least in this instance of like, yeah, this person is going to take out X person and I agree with that. And they can land a punch and break someone's nose. They can throw a chair over somebody. They can get into a fist fight. They can go to jail. They can murder. They can do whatever. And it's not real, but there's still that emotional satisfaction of the destruction and the violence and that very primal thing of... I like not necessarily witnessing it, but like the cathartic nature of it, but it's safe because it's fiction. I'm not like actually watching a bar fight outside my window, you know? Fair point. Fair point. I don't know. Ray, what do you think? (laughs) Yeah. You know, as you talked about watching a bar fight, it occurred to me, I'm extremely uncomfortable with violence in real life. Like it really upsets me. I don't even like to watch like TikTok videos of people falling down where like my wife loves them, thinks they're so funny. I don't like, it makes me uncomfortable. So I I totally get that. But I think there's absolutely a catharsis when you know that it's not real and it's just a book or a movie or a TV show and you get to see like revenge exact, you know, exacted. Uh, I I love, I love revenge as a theme in general. So I I love to see it. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think the, um, my heart is a chainsaw did a really good job of that mm-hmm. both from the like our somehow encapsulating both the it's a book and it's fiction and it's whatever like that viewpoint of like it's fine because it's not real and also the like it's a book and you get to see revenge 
like taken right it's it's somehow both in one novel it's great have you read it I haven't I've heard amazing things about it it's on my list but and and this is totally not intended to be like a humble brag I've been very bogged down with reading for blurbs this year so almost all of my reading has been blurb requests so my TBR is extra yeah no it's really exciting and I'm super honored but of course it takes time to to read the books and yeah oh absolutely yeah um but speaking of writers you like working with um are there any or like reading uh are there any other writers you've worked with in the past either as part of an anthology or for the purpose of beta reading or editing your work that you'd love to work with again so many i don't even know where to start um evelyn freeling is amazing um she was the editor of les petites morts the erotic um horror anthology it's all fairy tale retellings um and she's amazing i i like to think that i can call her a friend and she wouldn't mind that um but would love to work on more stuff with evelyn um I have a collaboration coming out uh, in early 2024 with April Yates. She's a wonderful writer based in England. Um, her her novella Ashthorn is great sapphic gothic horror. Um, honestly, there there are so many that I don't even want to list more for fear of leaving others out. I've been very fortunate, I think, to create a pretty like large. I guess community and I, I know there's been some discourse around that word writing community lately but ignoring that create lots of friendships and um critique partners and all all sorts of folks that are fabulously talented in their own right and I'd love to be able to work with as many of them as possible so actually on a, on a question because this this popped into my head uh when we were reading the bio the collaboration with April that you've got coming out in 2024 with with that for because it's a is it a novel or is it a novella it's a novel yeah okay all right um and we don't have to go like too into detail about this but I'm I'm always kind of curious how like the collaboration kind of works was it something that you was something that you guys were like both invested in right from the start, like you approached each other and had this idea, or was this something that just chance threw you guys together in order to work, uh, in order to work on this? And how did that kind of process of collaboration and pitching this and querying it, um, how did that kind of come about? Yeah, so I I owe any success I've had to pure audacity. Um, so I'm happy to tell the story of how this came about. Um, Essentially, April had asked me to beta read a novella that she was querying and sending to small presses called City of Snares. Um, So I had read that for her, another sapphic horror uh, work set in the golden age of Hollywood. It's excellent. And I had written Merciless Waters, which I asked her to beta read, you know, along with some other folks. So we both had these sapphic horror novellas and we were sending to similar presses. And I just messaged her one day and I was like, what do you think if we pitched a series together uh, as in our two novellas as a package deal and we could offer to collaborate on a third novella and she loved the idea so um we sold that idea to Brigades Gate Press uh to do the entire series and actually included 
um, an anthology to be co-edited by both of us, which submissions are open for right now. It's called Scissor Sisters. Um, so yeah, we just audacity and, and asking, I I'm a big believer in asking if you don't ask the answers always no. And then what was supposed to just be a novella turned into a full length novel. I saw the, um, I actually had it pulled up the, uh, submission call for scissor sisters. It, I, it looks like it's going to be like, I love the, the art you guys picked for the, um, the like website blurb on it. <laughs> yeah. That looks like it's going to be so fun when it's, uh, yeah, we've, we've gotten some amazing submissions. So I'm, I'm really excited. Yeah. Um, last question. Yeah. 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 Um, so you've been published, uh, we know you've only been in the game for a year, but you seem to have a very successful time of it so far and are certainly on track for more success as you're looking at the literary world and your influences. And as you continue to gain notoriety, who would you want your work to be compared to? Oh gosh. Um, I want to say Catriona Ward. I'm a massive fan of hers. I read The Last House on Needless Street and was just absolutely destroyed by it um, in the best way and have read a couple of her other works since. Um, she's just such a fabulous uh, th horror thriller, I'd say, author and can really do twists like no other, I think. So I, I would love to step my twist game up and maybe be compared to her. We want to ask you also a few questions about um, the Stradivarius, but it, would you be willing to give us a small sample of uh, of the novel? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to read, um, this is from chapter 18 of the Stradivarius. All right, floor is yours. May awoke sweaty, receding memories of disturbing dreams stabbed at the edges of her mind. Ollie's hands had been on her, warm caresses that sent blood coursing between her legs, but their tidy fingernails turned to long, scratching claws. Their hands swelled and sprouted coarse hair. Gripped by a beast, she'd turned to see Carter, fangs in his mouth and blood in his eyes. She'd known he was going to kill her, tear her, tear her flesh, eat her piece by piece, but the dream faded as her eyes adjusted to waking. She remembered that she loved him. The room was dark and she wondered how long she'd slept. Babe, she called out. He said he'd check on me. May's tea, half drunk, was cold on the nightstand. Silence had fallen over the house, explained by the white strip of paper Carter had left on his satin pillowcase. You were sleeping so soundly. I didn't want to wake you. Had to take care of some things back as soon as I can. Love, Carter. May rubbed at her eyes, hoping to wipe away the blur in her vision. Pressure from her fist shot purple light behind her eyelids. Her head throbbed. The skunky scent of a half-burned joint wafted into her nose, which she blocked with the back of her hand. Turning her head away from the culprit, she pushed it into her drawer and slammed it shut. Think I'm good on that for a while. Even she couldn't deny that maybe the weed played a role in her unusual experiences and vivid nightmares. May switched on the gas lamp beside her bed and the wall exploded with light. The wallpaper's golds glittered more vibrantly than the day they were stamped. The reds deep and regal, the patterns swirled into one another, morphed, shape-shifted, and swirled back into their positions. May's eyes dried, she forgot to blink. She spotted one swirl in particular, which unfurled, the tip moving in a come-hither motion. She'd never been high like this. 
she must still be dreaming. As if guided by an unseen hand, she stood and followed it into the hallway. May ran her fingers over the railing, and as her palm passed over the wood, nicks and scratches disappeared, its cherry luster restored. She gasped, but still the curling wallpaper called her forward. As her feet moved across a strip of rug, it felt deeper, more plush. Stains vanished, colors popped, walls bent and warped around her, breathing in time with her own chest. She raised an open palm to feel the movement, but the fingers she saw were not her own. Too short, too stubby, wrinkles in all the wrong places. A pang of horror shot through her, and she studied her hands, flipping them back and forth. These aren't mine. How did they get here? Her concentration was broken by the hint of a whisper. It beckoned her forward. Come, the house seemed to say. It pulled her into the library. Inside, she heard a chorus, a chorus of hushed voices, like she'd stepped into a fairy town, surrounded by thousands of tiny villagers, all gossiping about her at once. The vitriol of a thousand pinprick mouths, it itched her eardrums, and she stuck her fingers inside to scratch it. The sliding ladder rolled toward her, or did she approach it? Impossible to tell. A familiar spot of rust between the rungs reminded her of her father's old warning. See that? She'd nodded, probably six years old. Never climb this, okay? You've got a promise. It's just for show, not steady. She clawed at the oxidized metal, which flaked beneath her fingernail. Beneath it, trails of shining black iron, as if she removed a spot of ugly paint. She tore at the rusty shape with both hands now, until the whites of her fingernails turned orange, packed with rust. A puff of breath blew off the last of it, just dust now, and she observed the rolling ladder, brand new, as it must have been when it was installed. She climbed one rung and then two, and emboldened by success, clung to the very top of the ladder and observed the library from her high perch. The whispering was louder now, and she could tell it came from the books, the books full of words and their secrets, their pretend worlds and wolves and happy endings, stacks of lies, and now they tormented her, prying at her eardrums. She released her grip on the ladder, balancing on the balls of her feet, plunging both index fingers deep into her ears. Stop, she pleaded, but the voices whispered on. Stress leaked out through the sweat on her feet and the arches lost their grip. She slipped, had to snatch at the top rung to keep from tumbling all the way down. This put her eye to eye with a purple bound book, its title gawking at her from gold lettering. He loves her, read the side binding. Her eyes hopped to the next text, a burnt orange with black letters. You idiot. And the next, teal with yellow script. They're laughing at you. Stupid, silly, little girl. Rage erupted from May's throat in a scream. She grabbed the books and cast them down onto the floor one by one. Leaping from the ladder, she landed on top of them with a, sm a smack, and pain shot up through her ankles from the pressure. She stomped on the stack of books, which fought back, thrusting their dull edges into her bare feet. Fuck you. I think that's a good place to leave it. <laughs> yeah. Wow. It's, you do a really good job with suspense and just building yeah. tension. Thank you. For sure. Yeah. The, the thing that the thing that caught me like really when I even when I first started reading the Stradivarius, it, it's incredibly atmospheric. Um, you do an excellent job of showing the environment and how the environment also shifts from place to place, from time to time. Um, and in, in the initial chapters of the book, the the house where the house where uh, May's father was murdered 
Um, hopefully I'm not giving too much away because it's one of the stories. Um, the house where her father was murdered, even when they come back to it, uh, her and her, her and her husband Carter, when they come back to it, the mood is kind of melancholic. But now the in like the chapter that you just read, it seems to have shifted from melancholy to malice. And I kind of want to ask, like, how did you kind of negotiate that shift? Is that something that um, developed naturally over time? Or was that something you had to kind of put uh, plot points and like plot beats in in order to make sure that you were ratcheting up the tension at the right scale? Yeah, so that's a fantastic question. And and thank you for, for your compliments. I think... Um, it, it was certainly a challenge to try to ratchet up um, both the tension and also the sort of losing grip on reality in, in a way that would read as believable. And hopefully I, I did that well. I, I've honestly heard mixed feedback on whether folks felt that the pacing of that um, was, you know, ideal or not, which I totally welcome. You know, this is my debut novel, of course, always lots of room to grow. So hopefully I, I did all right. I will say, yeah, it, I did sort of plan out to the best of my ability, um, that sort of ratcheting up and, and hoping that would be believable. Um, yeah. It... Well, I think like, just as like a base, right. When you have any sort of emotionally abusive gaslighting, whatever situation, you don't start at 10. You don't start with like beating someone at a bar and being like, hi. And then like start immediately like with all that stuff, right? You don't. So there has to be some room for it to be believable and not all of those relationships move at the same speed and at the same pace. So not that, I mean, listen, if we all peaked at our debut novel, that would be a problem. But I would say for people who might have a criticism regarding the pace, none of these two relationships look the same. None of these two dynamics look the same. And then you're also adding in a horror component to it. So um, yeah, I think there's no formula. And I, I, I personally, from what I have, I will be honest and say I haven't finished it, but what I've read so far has felt very, very believable. Thank you. I, I think too, you're absolutely right that different people have experienced this type of dynamic at all kinds of different paces and in different ways. And I think a challenge that I came up against too in depicting this as part of a, a narrative that would keep people entertained is that in my experience, gaslighting happened that ramping up a lot in really everyday scenarios that would frankly be boring and very drawn out to sort of write in real time, right? Like those little everyday nothing comments, um, those sorts of things. So that that's always the struggle of, I guess, trying to translate, you know, real life things into a, a narrative is that you've got to do it in a way that's entertaining and, and paced well enough to keep people entertained. Um, but I think gaslighting in particular, like you talked about, does ramp up over time. And it's sort of that lobster and boiling water analogy, I think is appropriate here. Um, so yeah. it, it certainly uh, took some doing to try to figure out how much sort of quote unquote benign, right? Not benign because it is gaslighting, but 
not overtly violent sort of gaslighting type interactions do I want to include before action really ramps up? Yeah. And I think to an extent too, when you're looking at things like that and what you're saying, like a lot of the mundane stuff, right? I think what happens a lot of the time is, especially like within my, so I'll use like my friend group as an example. A lot of the time there'll be something where it's like completely not, like it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. Some little thing happened. You're like, I'm not even going to mention it. It's fine. Or you'll be like, oh yeah, like this stupid thing happened. It's fine. It fixed. And then you get like three, four, five, six months in, two years in, however long in. And you're like, oh yeah. And then he lied about like this massive thing. And people are like, wait, what? And you're like, no, like that's normal now. And they're like, um, I feel like we escalated really quickly. And so I think, especially to that pacing thing, a lot of that stuff just feels so mundane and so small and so like inconsequential. And then it does, I think, to the outside world just seem to jump from zero to a hundred and you're not aware and like people aren't necessarily aware. The outside world isn't aware of everything it took to get to that point. Yeah, no, totally. I, I think I said something in the nightmare article about, you know, emotional abuse being hard to describe because it's like a thousand invisible cuts made by, mm-hmm. you know, a tiny facial gesture, you know, the things that, you know, I, I really would sound unhinged if I tried to explain to people at the time, but then looking back, certainly we're part of a pattern of behavior, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. Makes total sense. And I I think also the other thing about it is that to a degree, because no two, maybe a very big generalization, um, but like people often don't react the same way to the exact same uh, things or the same actions. So what may, what even in real time may seem very important and meaningful to you to another person seems incredibly mundane. Um, even at the beginning stages of where like things haven't been escalated, but the things that exacerbate whatever past memories or past experiences you have or another person has, uh, that means a lot to you and very little to anybody else. So that's another, that's another like problem of like showing like how mundane these things are because they can mean a lot to the person who's experiencing them. But to the outside, it just looks like business as usual. Yeah. But so I kind of, this is more of a curiosity question, but I am really kind of intrigued by it. What about the movie? Uh, Gaslight with Ingrid Bergman uh, inspired wanting to do this retelling. Um, was it, was there something in particular that inspired it or had it always been like kind of an idea of yours to see how this, how that movie would work in a more modern day in a different setting with different characters? Um, and I'm kind of curious by because you often don't hear, you often don't hear about people saying, I want to, I want to tell a novel that is a different version or a re-examination of a 1958 movie. Yeah. Um, so I, I had been sort of stewing on exactly what this book would be for a while. And at first I thought it would center a main character who had um, some kind of psychosis going on. And I was sort of playing with that idea. And then I think when it clicked was someday or another, 
hearing yet again someone use the term gaslighting incorrectly, right? Because it's now become so part of the common vernacular that the meaning has been thoroughly watered down to the point that a lot of people don't even understand the true definition of what gaslighting looks like. And, you know, um, I, I shared about this in Nightmare, but it's true. Um, back when I was experiencing this, I had no idea what was going on. Gaslighting was not a term that anyone was using. And I had to do all kinds of research to figure out what the hell was going on in my life. And I finally came across this term gaslighting that described it so perfectly. And that was the first time I saw the references to the old um, film uh, and the play, you know, that the film came from. So, yeah, I, I think I'd been tossing around an idea and um, it, it just clicked that wouldn't it be great to remind people about Gaslight, um, where all of this came from. And it, it just sort of coalesced together. That's I, awesome. I love that. I love that. <laughs> and, you know, the last scene of the Ingrid Bergman film is just you know, chef's kiss, incredible, um, where she's got him tied to a chair and she does a whole speech and really flips everything that's been going on on its head and takes her power back. And, and it's a moment of feminine rage in an era when I think, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not an expert on the late thirties, but I don't think that feminine rage was like a big thing going on in the movies. Um, it's such a cool scene. Anyone who hasn't seen it, it's on YouTube for free. You can type in gaslight final scene and it's about a minute, 30 seconds and it's well worth your time. Um, I, I think watching that scene just made me go, oh, I absolutely have to retell this story. I, yeah, I think that's so interesting too. Cause I, have also like tried to like definitely done things and written things out of spite but i love that part of the origin is like none of you knows what this means none of you are using this word correctly <laughs> let me school yeah. you off and, and i'll just say it, it's a little of that and and it's also that i i obviously have a very personal connection to the experience of going through gaslighting and how devastating it is and i don't use that term lightly um in a really long term way on someone's psyche so i don't like that it's misused not as someone who wants to be a stickler for using words the right way but because i think it takes away from the people that have actually gone through this experience and really been shaken for a very long time um, by going through this kind of abuse. So when, when I do see people use it as sort of a substitute for like someone who lies or someone who doesn't do what they said they would, or, you know, someone who denies something that they did, you know, it's, it's really a lot bigger than that and a lot more complicated than that. And I think it, it deserves its place as like a unique term. And I, I hope, you know, people, get what it is a little more and use it correctly. Cause I, I do feel for people that have really gone through it and now it's sort of watered down. I will say I don't, and this might be a personal thing that I just don't, uh, I haven't seen it. I do not know a single person who has been in an emotionally abusive situation and has called it an emotionally abusive situation until they've been out of it. While you're in it, it does, I, I've never heard of a person say 
yes, this is happening or being like, yeah, he gaslights me all the time, but we're still together. Like I don't anytime where that's actually what's happening. Yeah. The self-awareness isn't there. I think that's part of it, right? Because part of gaslighting is getting the person to question their own judgment. Um, So I think that's probably, it's built in, right? To what's going Mm -hmm. on that it's hard for someone to earnestly say, oh, I'm being gaslit because part of that is the the self-doubt and, and all of that that's going on. So um, I, I, my situation happened over years sort of interspersed. So I think maybe I had at least enough clarity to think at times that that was going on. You know, I, I won't say I like did this perfectly. I certainly did not. And, and definitely stayed in that situation a very long time, uh, much longer than I should have. But yeah, I think it's just part of the deal, unfortunately, that when someone has been manipulative enough uh, and successful enough at it, because I've also seen people try to gaslight and they're just no good at it. So it's, it doesn't work. And it's very clear that that's what they're trying to do, but yeah, no good at it. Um, but if you've had the misfortune of coming across someone who's very gifted at it. it. It's a whole other thing. Yeah. And it's so different from like li- just straight up lying or straight up bullying or anything else. It is its own category. So its own complicated, diverse talent in a way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So talk to us about the, so you mentioned kind of that you'd, how you found the uh Gate with uh, April. But how did you come to find them with this book and how was working with them through this book and kind of describe that process of submission to editing? Yeah. So, okay. I'll first say, I don't recommend anyone do what I did. Um, So I had a first draft written of this and there was a Twitter event coming up called mood pitch. I'm pretty sure it was mood pitch where you create a mood board, um, basically like a aesthetic images that represent your book well and a pitch that will fit within Twitter's character limit. And it's on a certain day and publishers and literary agents kind of keep an eye out. And if they like your pitch, they want you to kind of query them with the project. Um, So I only had a first draft. It was completely unedited and I did it anyway, because I'm reckless, Uh, even though you're only supposed to do it if you have like, you know, if you're ready, you're not supposed to do what I did. Um, Thinking nothing's going to happen. No one's going to request this book. And even if they do, they only ask for the first few chapters, no big deal. So I did the event, Brigid's Gate expressed interest in the book. I sent them the first couple chapters, still not panicking, thinking, you know, I can, you know, edit the rest whenever they'll, they'll never get back to me. Or if they do, it'll be much, much later. A few days later, they requested the full manuscript. Um, So I, in a fever dream of like 48 hours, revised the entire book and send it to them. And, uh, you know, they took probably a couple of weeks to read it and got back to me and said, we want to publish this. That's awesome. Also, you're like the first success I've heard of any of those. There's uh, the pitch wars, there's mood wars, the mood board things, there's all that. So I think you're the first success success story I've ever heard off of that. Not just the people like liking the tweet, but of that actually leading to. Yeah. Uh, the querying of the book. Yeah. 
It amazingly worked out. Um, and yeah, certainly reckless on my part, but I'll, I'll say I'm reckless, but I have the hyper-focus to pay for those consequences. So I did sit there and <laughs> revise an entire manuscript. <laughs> so did you work with an editor there or was that edited version, the one that ended up coming no, out? So- yeah, so they have editors. Um, I worked with MJ Panky on the Stradivarius. Um, so basically, uh, the press is owned by Heather and Steve, and then they work with a handful of editors who will do a round of developmental edits. They'll send that back, and I made changes uh, around storyline, piecing, stuff like that. And then it goes to another editor for proofreading. So it still went through a couple of editors after that point. And I actually, even before it got to the editor, did another heavy revision on the full manuscript before even the the developmental edits. Gotcha. That's kind of nice though, so that you have like that process of you have a content editor, and then you have the proofreader to like, as a third set of eyes to make sure because there's always that one errant comma or that one word was spelled and I'm sure there's still stuff in there um in fact when I sent out arcs I have like the best friends ever they sent me like a list of typos that were still in there with the arc copy so we made like another round of proofreading it's just impossible to get them all to be honest I, I don't hold it against any editor whatsoever it's just is what it is and you said you had like another period of heavy revisions before it went to, uh, before it went to the developmental ed- editing stage at uh, Break Bridges Gate. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how that process worked. Like, did you kind of just go right back from the beginning and like read through it and be like, okay, these things need to change, these things need to change? Or did you kind of have an art, a very clear idea as to how you wanted to rework it uh, even before you started the revision process? Or had you gotten like beta reader feedback or something like that? Yeah. yeah. Um, I got beta reader, beta reader feedback. Um, and there were a few things in particular, and I, I won't say specifically what it was because it will be a big spoiler, but someone found a massive plot hole, um, that I had to fix obviously. And, and thank goodness that they did find it. Um, but yeah, so it went through a few beta readers that I really trusted. And then, um, I, I don't take all feedback into account. Um, you know, only if I agree with it and and think it serves the story. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of where I started was getting it through some trusted beta readers and incorporating their feedback And then I did my own top to bottom read throughs after that and made additional changes. Yeah. Yeah. I love hearing about other editors revision or other writers editing and revision process, because it's one of those things that how do people realize they've made mistakes and then go back and fix them. Um, But with you, it sounds like you're very much, you, you are gifted with a lot of very talented and very good friends who are beta readers is that is that kind of the case where it's like the the beta reading is like the initial stream of feedback that caused you to think maybe other things can change as well yeah totally and I'll I'll say too I think my process for using um beta reading has changed uh the longer I've been writing to where I 
used to kind of um, just send it out to anyone who was willing to beta read it. And now I've really refined it down to a few key people that I think really understand my style of writing and really understand the genres and sub-genres that I'm writing in. Um, and I think that's really important um, for anyone that's sort of just getting started out or um, just starting with beta readers. Uh, that would be my key takeaway is to make sure your betas are reading and writing in your genre and that they sort of understand your personal voice because you don't want certain notes to actually do harm to the story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sounds like you also ran like you lucked out in the sense that because that process happened so quickly you didn't run the risk in the other direction of holding on to it and editing it too much or not knowing when to let it go and having someone else look at it. Like you had to send it off to someone. Yeah, no, I guess so. But I'm also, again, like sort of reckless. So, and impatient. So that would also not be me. If anything, I skew towards like moving too fast than like being overly cautious for better or worse. Yeah. Definitely had that, uh, last minute submission deadline thing and then realizing that there's like 50 grammar mistakes in the last three pages being like ah oh, it's probably a no at this point but <laughs> it's fine. yeah or, or the worst one is when you realize the plot hole that you left in without even without even thinking about it and there's like well if they do accept that that's going to be possibly some hot garbage um, yeah and then you just look at horror at your screen being like oh what am I <laughs> the moment where the acceptance is not the outcome you wanted <laughs> Um, the other the other thing is like you were kind of talking about like finding people who like read and write and kind of understand your voice I imagine also and this may be a very very uh stereotypical response but I imagine people who writing in like the genre that you have mentioned you like to write in like particularly with like erotic horror I imagine that's something that also you don't want to potentially throw at someone who isn't fully aware of what they're getting into before you ask them for a round of edits or beta reading. Yeah, and and I always put my content warnings on the very first page of anything I send, even to beta readers, um, because I'm very aware of that. And like the erotic horror novel that April and I wrote together has a, not only a list of content warnings, but like a full two paragraph disclaimer of like, this is not for you if any of this stuff, you know, like we're so serious. Um, we provided resources, uh, like very um, cautious about who we send that to, gave them like a full brief before even agreeing to like send a link um, just because there is incredibly potentially um, triggering material in, in that work in particular. So I try to use like an overabundance of caution um, when it comes to erotic horror, because it's it's rife with potential to be harmful. And, and I certainly don't want that. Yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. I think it's one of those like better safe than sorry things, right? So uh, before we kind of wrap it up, I guess one of, the, one of the questions I would have is that what, if you had one chance to kind of say to people what took away from reading Stradivarius what would you want them to know what would you want them to be able to see by the end of the book yeah so I think I wrote my dedication with that in mind and the dedication is to everyone who wasn't sure if it was real 
Um, I, I think for me, the, the real experiences that went into the inspiration for this felt very isolating and, um, you know, unique, uh, even though it's, it's not terribly unique. I think a lot of people go through it. And, um, I hope that anyone who reads this, that's had any sort of similar experience, um, just feels a little less alone and, and seen and validated by it. That's a fantastic note to end it on. Yeah, like that. <laughs> so Stradivarius is already out. Merciless Waters is coming out next, and that's later this year, if I recall correctly. Yep, November. November. And then uh, The Lies That Bind will be coming out in 2024. And that's with April Yates. Yep. Yeah. And keep an eye out for Scissor Sisters, too. But, but yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. It's been so great talking to you. I always love having, um, we don't have as many women on the show, which is, I don't know. So I always love it when we're talking to, to another woman who writes thriller and horror and dark, dark as fuck shit. Yes. <laughs> it's very, it's very enjoyable for me as well. Just getting a different perspective on things. Um, the, the white male perspective on things is getting kind of boring from my perspective. Um, <laughs> but uh yeah thank you so much for coming on the show ray um to all of our listeners please like comment subscribe share with your friends and your favorite podcast app um in the meantime we'll have all the links to uh ray's work in the show notes as well as where you can follow her on social media and in the meantime please remember to always look beneath the surface thank you everybody bye guys mm-hmm.